Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. According to the CDC, about 6 in 10 adults in the U.S. have a chronic disease. And data from the National Center for Health Statistics says that in 2019, about 2 in 10 adults in the U.S. were dealing with chronic pain. With the emergence of long COVID, our relationship and understanding of these illnesses is ever-evolving. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we explore the sometimes invisible suffering of those struggling with long-term health conditions. Later, we'll talk to health and science writer Pam Bellick about the latest research on long COVID. But first, Sonia Huber. She's professor of creative writing at Fairfield University and author of seven books. She writes about her experience with rheumatoid arthritis and other conditions in Pain Woman Takes Your Keys and other essays from a nervous system. She's also experienced long COVID symptoms after contracting the virus in March of 2020. Sonia, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. You are a prolific, award-winning author. You're also a professor. But in some ways, your work has become a voice for realities, life challenges that often go overlooked or misunderstood for many people. And so I want to start with this book, Pain Woman Takes Your Keys and Other Essays from a Nervous System. To our listeners who have not yet read the book, what's it about? It's sort of an experimental exploration of what it's like to live with chronic pain. And I tried to because chronic pain can be a somewhat scary subject, I tried to really have fun with the language. So it always sounds weird to people, I think, when I say that I had the most fun of all my books writing this one. What was fun writing this book about chronic pain? How did you make it fun and find fun in writing about this difficult topic? So, you know, when I first got diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis in uh, 2011, I was sort of, you know, crushed by suddenly having the presence of daily pain in my life. And so I began to just make notes in a journal. And I've always, as a writer, had kind of a metaphor problem. We're supposed to, as writers, you know, limit ourselves to like a few judicious metaphors. And so because I was so sad, I decided I was going to throw caution and the normal rules to the wind. And so instead, I just went as far as I could into playing with the playing with language and images and everything like that to try and capture and explore what this new existence meant. So it's at the level of language and imagination, I think um, it it offers kind of a different window. One of the other lenses that you offer in this collection and in the way that you approach this topic is that you are very raw and honest and candid about 
the range of emotions, not just experiences, but emotions that accompany having this diagnosis, all of the questions, all of the uncertainties, and the thoughts about what does this mean for your day-to-day life and the many ways that you identify yourself or the things that you're passionate about. And you talk in this collection about taking these notes, documenting what to some may seem like a mundane experience, but for you was really important to understanding the complexity of it. You also talk about this connection between pain and working through depression of not Mm -hmm. trying to see it as a silo, but connected in an existence. How did this approach allow you to follow those multiple paths and what they meant for your life and, and for the lives of so many others who are dealing with chronic pain? One of the things that was so important to me started with, uh, a question from my then boyfriend, now husband. Um, and he asked, you know, during one time when I was really overwhelmed, um, he asked, well, what, what parts don't hurt? And I, you know, so I started listing, you know, like my nose gives me no problem, my scalp. And then, you know, from that, and plus uh, leaning on my practice of meditation, which I had done for a number of years, I started to watch what was happening in my body and realized that like depression, it was never a constant and it wasn't an all encompassing void that I was in. Instead, it sort of shifted, it moved. And so then I started to really track and try to understand what that movement was like. And, you know, that had also really helped me in dealing with depression, this Buddhist idea that nothing is static, right? And so within that constant change, I really leaned into the fact that there's, there's room to move and that, you know, moving with it rather than trying to force my way through it, which had been my previous very type A personality, um, was something that I was going to have to learn how to do a little bit more. So to take advantage of windows when I could do things I wanted to do. I mean, it sounds like a real life lesson of moving through change, moving through the waves of change instead of fighting it and resisting it. But I'm also struck by you said your then boyfriend, now husband asked Mm -hmm. you what you were feeling and what you're experiencing. And I think often when people are dealing with chronic pain or any other kind of challenge, They feel like they have to deal with it alone. And it's hard to explain to others, even those who are close to you, who care about you, that sense of, I just have to go it alone. How did that experience that you had help you kind of think of the language of, as you were doing these body scans daily, ongoing, checking in with yourself, with your spirit, centering that, how you share that with others or even allow you to share that with people who are close to you. And that's definitely sort of, I think the impulse that I had at first to try and figure out the metaphors was because this experience is so internal, right? And in that way, it's very isolating because without words to describe it, you're sort of locked in in a way. And I really, I got a lot of help both from my husband, my son was also amazing. And 
they encouraged me also to have a little bit more fun in other areas of my life and sort of get sustenance. And so that was another part of, you know, something that was so important for my ongoing sanity. So, you know, while I don't like to say that um, I'm grateful for chronic pain, I am grateful for the challenge because it's changed my life in a lot of ways. Writing is often perceived to be this individual solitary process that you go into the quiet room and you just write and there comes this masterpiece, award-winning masterpiece in your case. But one of the threads that I see throughout your writing is this importance of building community and connecting in ways that we may not always perceive as the path. And I think about this particular collection of essays of how you have helped curate a community of people who share the common experience of pain, but how they navigate it, how they see it, how it shows up in their lives is so different. Talk to us about the title of this book, (laughs) what it means (laughs) and and how you arrived at this title. So uh, I was, you know, sort of in the early stages of trying to figure out how to continue writing, especially on days when I had bad pain. So one day I, I was just, you know, it was a bad pain day. I couldn't really focus on my big project that I was working on. And so I said, okay, I, I need to do my syllabi too, but I can't even focus on my syllabi. It was August. And, um, and so instead of writing the syllabi, I just started writing a little blog post and I called it the shadow syllabus. And it was just a list of things that I wish I could put in my syllabus. But it was really direct and it was talking to students. And then I thought, you know, okay, this is fine, Sonia. This is all you need to do for today. And I posted it and just walked away. And I was shocked then within a couple hours to find that this thing had gotten huge, (laughs) had gone all over the internet, and it continues to circle. And so then I was left with this issue of, well, okay, I try really hard to write well. And why is it that this version of me, pain woman, who really, I felt like I was just phoning it in, what was it about her writing that sort of achieved this level of attention? And so I began to try and think about what's different about writing when I was in pain. And so I started to describe how this pain woman voice doesn't have a lot of room to move. And so she's super direct, right? And then I began to explore how this direct voice kind of allowed me to say things that in my normal personality, I would be much more circuitous about. And so leaning into that gave me Pain Woman and a bunch of other experiments. It's amazing that this identity, this new experience of I don't have a lot of time to worry about, you know, how it's landing for other people in this moment of clarity, however long I have it. I need to say this because I'm not sure if I'll be able to say what I need to in order to do. And it's amazing how that's the experience in the moment when we feel like we can be our truest, most authentic selves and lean into that without all of the other concerns of how I'll be perceived, how others will respond. And as you said, you you certainly are not saying you're thankful for having chronic pain, 
but thankful for how the experience has allowed you to lean into your voice. So I want to hear a bit of that voice and ask you if you could share a passage with us from your essay, Lava Lamp of Pain. Definitely. Pain moved into my body five years ago. It wasn't the whack of an anvil or the burn of a scraped knee. This pain sat warmly on the surface of my hands up to the elbows, like evil pink evening gloves, with a sort of swimming cap clenched on my head, with blue plastic flowers at the base of the neck and a nauseating blur in the eyes. At other times, the pain was a cold ache at the knuckles, with a frazzle in the stomach and a steady and oblong ache from hip to hip across the pelvis. It was a rigid curled ache in the toes like the talons of a predatory bird. How long it had been there? I had noticed driving home from my teaching job at a university in a small Georgia town that my hands hurt when I gripped the steering wheel. I decided to try to grip things more lightly, but the achiness spread. Maybe it was stress, I reasoned. Life had exploded in the past few years, a divorce, then single motherhood, and a mysterious infection that turned out to be Hashimoto's thyroiditis, an autoimmune condition where the thyroid slowly erodes. As the wreckage began to settle, I seemed to be left with a glowing skeleton. I got up in the morning on a fall day, swung my legs out of bed, and thought, oh, the skeleton did not like that. Lying in bed at night, I felt my skeleton pulsing. I shifted under the sheet and struggled to fold together my collection of bones. I was a silverware drawer in a mess, a tangled wind chime. I wedged extra pillows between my knees. Advil barely helped at all. It was stress. It was tension. I took a yoga class. I was getting old. But nobody gets old within three months. I was so angry at every limb, the way each joint refused to do my bidding. I didn't know then that I'd become a lava lamp of curling invisible storm clouds filled with a surge of mute motion that might be its own kind of fierce beauty. I mean, it's clear to me why this is an award-winning collection. (laughs) The... Thank you for sharing that, because there is a raw vulnerability that you express there, the sense of uncertainty. And I'm also struck by the many ways in which we try to talk ourselves out of the reality that we're facing. We, We try to excuse it. So that it's something that we've done or something we can control as, you know, as opposed to something that is now saying, no, this is my control of you and your body. Yeah. Walk us through what it was like to come to the realization that, wait, this isn't just stress. This isn't just being tired. This is something much more serious. I was, um, I was both really frightened and really angry in like real in, in alternating waves. And I began 
around the time that I first had the pain to pay closer attention to all the pharmaceutical commercials. And there was a, you know, a big wave of them around that time where rheumatoid arthritis drugs were advertised with horrible side effects, but they showed like people bouncing on trampolines in the evening on, in a field. Right. And I thought that's what I want. I want to cure. So I had a real pointed hope that I could be cured. Give me the right pill. This could be erased. And so I felt my previous self kind of receding and I kept trying to get back there. And then at the same time, you know, there was just a ton of fear about the economic position this country puts disabled folks in, right? Like I was a single mom and I was terrified that I wasn't going to be able to support um, myself and my son. Most people don't think about teaching being a physical job, but it really is in terms of the long days, the often the evenings, you know, showing up for events. So I definitely experienced every level of panic and fear. And then going into doctor's offices, I was often, you know, told, well, you're too young to have rheumatoid arthritis. I, t- I was told once, like, you're too pretty to have rheumatoid arthritis. Like, just ridiculous. If thing. only that was the antidote to chronic pain. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so, you know, just the feeling like I was embattled in my life. And then also that I couldn't get uh, clear answers from doctors and the medical community was just, it was a period of real intense fear and anger. Sonia Huber is author of Pain Woman Takes Your Keys and other essays from a nervous system. When we return, ask Sonia how her latest book, A Writing Guide, was influenced by her experience with pain. And later we talk to health and science writer Pam Bellick about long COVID. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about chronic health conditions. Later in the show, health and science writer Pam Bellick will talk to us about what we know about long COVID so far. But now let's get back to our conversation with Sonia Huber. She's author of Pain Woman Takes Your Keys and other essays from a nervous system. The book talks about Sonia's life with rheumatoid arthritis. 
I talked to her about the complexity of navigating the U.S. healthcare system. It's a system that often forces patients to justify their pain while also considering whether they can afford proper care. Sonia's chronic pain was happening as the U.S. was starting to come to grips with the opioid crisis and as many people became concerned about the overprescription of certain opioids. Ask Sonia about her experience dealing with that system. For rheumatoid arthritis, there's a certain window at the beginning where it's best to get treatment. And so when I needed to get a diagnosis, I needed an MRI, which my uh, insurance refused so that I, I missed the window where I could have gotten, you know, biologics that would have done the most good. So instead, I was shunted over to pain treatment. And had the experience early on of a doctor prescribing me a pretty low-level opioid, which I took scrupulously as directed. And then I would go into other doctor's offices and sort of, they would ask me to recite my med list. I would tell them what I was on. And that was the first reaction of someone looking at me and saying, whoa, you're on a lot of pain pills. And I began to understand in a way that I hadn't before that they were seeing me as if I were just there to get pain pills. And, you know, I would say, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm taking them exactly as prescribed by doc, Dr. X, Y, or Z. But I began to really see how once that judgment was in place, it was then almost impossible to have an honest exchange with a doctor. And I know that doctors are under extreme pressure, right? And that pressure has only ramped up to try and limit the prescription of opioids. So I've tried as a way to kind of get away from that pressure, tried for long periods to go without them. But I became through this book and just through corresponding with other folks in pain I just became really, really shocked and disheartened at the vast number of people who are not getting treatment for pain. And as you know, as I'm sure you probably know, we're at the stage where folks who are dying and need morphine are sometimes refused morphine because they are going to become dependent on it, you know, which doesn't matter if you're dying. Um, so there's just, you know, it's an incredible culture of fear right now, despite the fact that many studies show that a very small percentage of chronic pain patients actually develop an addiction. What we develop is a, is a, um, a physical dependency in the same way that I am very much also addicted to coffee in the morning. So not a true addiction. One of the things that I appreciate about this collection is that you lift up the understanding that this is your experience, this is your journey. It is one that is resonant with so many people, but you also offer that there are layers to those experiences of the ways that gender shapes mm. people's experiences with pain, their experience with treatment, the shame, the stigma of, oh, she just pushed through it, she can get through it. The, the ways that things like race and class yeah. and where you live, with whom you live, how all of that goes in. With that understanding, there's a line in your book that is stuck with me, and that is the worst thing to do during an appointment 
is to cry. Why do you say that? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a reality for so many people, uh, you know, and, and it's especially across the lines of race, gender, and class, as you mentioned. We know that going into a doctor's office, we paradoxically need to look as though we're somewhat put together, but also not too put together, right? And so I have made the mistake of early in my quest for treatment to, to, to show my true emotions because I didn't yet know that that would result in a line in my medical records, right? Like hysterical, difficult, et cetera. Any sort of judgment that a doctor might make about you in a very short window of time that they have, right? 15 minutes for an interaction. And that's so often those first thoughts, as we know, are also the, often the most biased, right? And so then the horrible thing for so many folks is that then not only does that get recorded by, by one doctor, but it follows you through your medical records. So the, the judgment that so many people face and the difficulty of being honest with a doctor means that there's very little hope of you know, for many folks of getting the support that they need. There is a level of freedom that I think many people take for granted when it comes to having to worry about and think about these things, accessing the care that you need. And I'm reminded of when I was pregnant many years ago, I would always be sure that I wore my wedding rings when I went to appointments, no matter how swollen I was, and it made no sense. But I knew how differently they treated people that they thought were unwed or that they thought oh, had made gosh. some careless decision, right? As opposed to saying, me thinking, this is absolutely ridiculous that I have right. to worry about this. But I know that the quality of care that I receive will have an impact on my life and the life of this child. And as ridiculous as it is, let me think about this. And I think about that right. for people managing chronic pain, who constantly have to think about, you know, an example, if I, if someone parks in a handicapped parking spot and people say, well, you don't look like you have a handicap. Why do you need that? Yeah. Having to justify. One of the other yeah. ways that we're seeing that now, and you've talked about this in other pieces, is when we think about COVID and long COVID and the, the ongoing consequences of that for many people's lives. And so you've talked about the fact that you are managing chronic pain, you're managing long COVID and the, the consequences of that for things like brain fog, especially mm -hmm. for a writer and a professor and a mom and all of these other things that you do. What do you say to people who still don't get it, who still assign this sort of shame or stigma that people like you have to navigate? Yeah, gosh. Um, and it's really in our culture, right? And I think it goes back to the thing you mentioned earlier. Uh, for I, I believe folks want to have control of their lives, right? And so even if they would rather have it be an illusion, folks really do want to think that if you if you have some willpower, if you do yoga and take the right supplements, you know, there's a way to quickly fix everything. And I think that's also, you know, it's tied into a lot of really deep currents in our culture. 
about how we as individuals can sort of manifest health just because we want it. When I first started to get sick many years ago, the idea of disability really scared me, um, partially because of my own ableism, which I had been sort of, you know, raised in. And I also thought a lot about, you know, but there are people who are really disabled. So if I was to say I was disabled, I'm like taking something away from them. But it's been uh, disabled writers and activists that have really given me the route to understand my life and to sort of get past that individual judgment, the shame, and just to say, oh, it is totally possible to have a wonderful life with various things that aren't reliable in my life. I do wonder whether you think things are getting better in terms of the role of media in our lives and in advancing some of these notions, you know, around ableism and ability and even the language that we use to Mm -hmm. capture this, this people first language, but allowing Mm -hmm. people to say, you know, we have CRIP studies in academia, disability studies of people reclaiming the language via media to communicate, but also say, this doesn't have to be this big, scary thing because we stop sequestering. Yeah. Do you think media is getting better or, or is there still a lot of work to be done in that area? I think from 2016 or so on, I've seen kind of as a result, as a, as a reaction to sort of some political trends in the country, I do feel there like there's a greater, not only awareness of disability, but an understanding that it is a political identity, right? And it's a political lens through which to see society. And it intersects with so many other forms of oppression. It's, you know, it has its social component. And I see a greater awareness among people who don't identify as disabled, that things like CRIP studies or disability studies is so important for us to understand what it means to be human. There's been an amazing range of books that have come out, you know, people describing their experience, making theory about it, and also sharing what everyone has to benefit from the disability lens. So I am I'm very hopeful personally. You and I both have the the privilege of working on college campuses with young people who's mm understanding their engagement and really their indictment of cultural norms gives us hope that, you know, people have a different understanding. And because you mentioned politics, I remember having a conversation with some students about the Pennsylvania Senate race. And they were outraged that people would say, you know, how ableist is it to say that this person who's recovering from a major health event is unworthy to serve because what does that mean for my friends who experience neurodiversity and say that they should have every right to participate or those who are dealing with short-term health challenges or longer term, but are no less citizens in the US and have an impact in democracy. So that ability of young people to not take for granted the things that I think people of our generation have been socialized and conditioned to see it as a, a personal failure versus a reality. Definitely. That's yes, the piece definitely. that I think is helpful. I want to talk briefly. You do have so many writing projects that span 
But I want to touch on your most recent book, Mm. Voice First, A Writer's Manifesto. How did your experience with pain shape your approach Mm. to this book? So it actually, I I think uh, Pain Woman birthed this new writing guide, Voice First, in that Pain Woman was the first voice that I really experimented with. And then I kind of was thinking uh, in the years after I wrote that book, what other voices do I have? And I began to sort of, you know, with students, just name them and ask students to name their various voices. And I saw how fun it was for people to write into their various persona and saw too that there's something about the attention to naming voices that really encourages people to embody their writing a little bit more, which I found was really freeing for for my students' writing and for my own writing. So yes, in a lot of ways, my attention to process because of chronic pain has sort of allowed me to develop this sort of odd other way to think about creative writing. You have this attention to process. You also have this attention to moment and to being fully present in the (laughs) moment. And one of the ways that you capture this is through what you call pain selfies. What are pain (laughs) selfies? And why do you use them as a form of your own engagement, connection, and focus? Being in the midst of a, a bad pain flare, it, it, it's it's a, it's an odd experience, but it feels almost like like I'm floating in space or something. It's an it's it just feels like a strange kind of of a trance, and so because it's hard to see pain, I took photos of myself at various points, kind of almost to say like, okay, I'm still there. Like the outside world is still there. My face is still there. But also because I kind of wanted some sense of representation to myself that this is another layer of my experience. Myself in pain is also me. And so over time, I had experimented with writing about that. I had shared those with people and then found that other people who have pain often did the same thing. So it's an interesting way that, you know, to use your phone in a way to kind of center yourself and remind yourself, this is a different version of my experience, but I'm still, I'm still there. You're still there, still writing, and we appreciate (laughs) you for doing that. Sonia Hoover is professor of creative writing at Fairfield University. She's author of seven books, including Pain Woman Takes Your Keys and other essays from a nervous system. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Coming up, health and science writer Pam Bellick will update us on the latest long COVID research. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. In June, data from the CDC and the U.S. Census Bureau show that nearly one in five adults who reported having COVID also reported that they were still experiencing symptoms. Our understanding of long COVID is evolving, but there's still a lot of mystery about what causes long COVID and how and when people recover. 
Our next guest is Pam Bellick. She's health and science writer for the New York Times. Pam, welcome to Disrupted. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. We're hearing a lot in public conversation, in reporting about the study of long COVID. And a lot of that has to do not just with the incidence of long COVID, but new studies surrounding that and updates. And so before we get into some of those updates, share with our listeners, what exactly is long COVID and what are some of the symptoms associated with that? Long COVID is very broadly defined right now. Doctors are still trying to get a a more specific handle on many things about it. But basically, right now it is defined as almost any symptom that either emerges several months after an initial coronavirus infection or sort of lingers after your initial COVID infection for several months. And we have seen reporting of up to 200 different types of symptoms that can affect almost any organ system or aspect of a person's health. So that can range from breathing difficulties, respiratory symptoms that that linger. There are some heart-related difficulties, cardiac problems that people are reporting. There are a range of neurological issues. There are issues with tremendous fatigue. That's probably one of the most common. And not necessarily just sort of feeling tired, what we think of as fatigue, but a kind of really debilitating sense of exhaustion that often gets worse after some type of exertion, either like a mental or physical activity um, can really set people back. And there's a name for that. It's called post-exertional malaise. Um, We've seen this with other other illnesses. And this is one thing that people are reporting. And then one thing that, you know, your listeners have probably heard a lot about is what's being called brain fog, which is sort of a catch-all term for cognitive slowness, attention problems, um, some memory problems, you know, just kind of people not being able to keep track of the things they used to be able to keep track of, or even like respond to emails and that kind of thing. And as I'm listening to you describe these symptoms, some of those symptoms sound like other health-related challenges that people have. How do doctors, health professionals, patients know that it is in fact long COVID and not chronic fatigue syndrome or something else? Is there a diagnosis of long COVID or is it this accumulation of symptoms that happen post someone having COVID? Right now, you know, there's no blood test you can take. There's no way to kind of diagnose long COVID as we might uh, say cancer or some other uh, type of illness. It does resemble, and for some people, they think it is identical to chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, other types of syndromes that have been around for a long time and appear to be also occurring after a viral infection. It is currently kind of a diagnosis of exclusion. So if you have a symptom that is persisting and you go to somebody who is familiar with post-COVID issues and they can't figure out any other reason for why you might be suffering and you did have a COVID infection, then 
that is being considered a diagnosis of long COVID. Are we seeing any patterns in who is most likely to develop long COVID? Does it mirror the people who are, you know, highest at risk for COVID to begin with? Or are these studies showing us we don't yet know those sort of patterns? Basically, most studies are showing a sort of what I call kind of a gradient. So if a person got very sick from the initial COVID infection, if they were hospitalized, uh, if they were in ICU, then they are more likely to end up with lasting symptoms, right? That's not necessarily surprising. However, we are seeing many, many people who had very mild illness, even asymptomatic uh, reaction to their initial infection, who are developing long COVID symptoms weeks or a couple months later. There's an estimate out there from the U.S. government that between 7 million and 23 million Americans have some long COVID issue. Who are those people? Well, many, many of those people are people who only got mildly sick from their initial infection just because they make up the majority of people infected by COVID. Only about you know 20% of people in the first wave of the COVID pandemic ended up being hospitalized. So basically that kind of gives you a picture. So we're starting to fill that picture in, but there's still a lot that they don't know. There's a lot that they don't yet know. There are a <laughs> lot of questions remaining. But one of the things that we do know, Pam, is that from the beginning of us even hearing about COVID, it's been controversial, whether it is COVID's existence, the origins of it, how to prevent it, how to treat it. There's always this controversy. And now with long COVID, we're seeing controversy again. And a lot of debate and discussion, particularly in the social media space, where sadly, many people rely on that to get their information when it comes to things like health. What is this controversy about with long COVID that we're seeing right now? Well, I think that, as you said, you know, anytime there is a sort of new health situation, as we've seen during the pandemic, you know, there are skeptics who come forward, um, whether it's about vaccines, whether it's about the existence of COVID, whether it's about what caused COVID to begin with. And long COVID is seeing that same kind of skepticism from some people. But I will say that in the maybe two years now that I've been writing about these post-COVID symptoms, there does seem to be a wider uh, sense of acceptance and acknowledgement, certainly from health authorities and government agencies and many doctors are much more open to acknowledging that long COVID is a real thing. It's a serious problem. It can be very debilitating. Whereas when I initially started reporting about this a couple of years ago, uh, there was a lot more kind of skepticism and doctors kind of throwing up their hands and, and, and people wondering, you know, are you making this up? I want to go to an article that you recently had published in the New York Times because I think it, it speaks to why we collectively should take this more seriously. And in the article, you talk about the fact that long COVID has caused or contributed to at least 3,500 deaths in the United States. Talk to us a little more about that connection in the article and what you think it, it says or means for how we should understand long COVID. 
Yeah, so this was a study by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And uh, what they did was they looked at a huge database of death certificates of people who died from COVID. So in the United States, there have been more than a million deaths of people who were you know, infected with COVID-19. And the CDC researchers looked at this database and they were searching to see, did any of these death certificates make reference to long COVID or eight or 10 other kind of terms that are associated or used to kind of express what we call long COVID. So post-COVID, long-haul COVID, other things that are a little bit more, more scientific. They found in that you know, database of more than a million deaths, a little more than 3,500 death certificates that did make reference to long COVID. It's significant because it shows that these kinds of post-COVID symptoms can have very, very serious consequences to the point where they can even, you know, make it more likely that somebody is is going to die. And this was the first study that looked at this, and and most experts and the CDC researchers themselves say, you know, this is just scratch, scratching the surface. There's a lot of there's a lot of things that are imprecise about analyzing death certificates, of course, but it's a signal, and it it's a a bit of a a tip of the iceberg kind of moment that says this condition is something that can be life-threatening. And I appreciate that this is an initial study, but it also, I think, challenges all of us to remember that we don't yet know everything about long COVID, but we do know there are very serious implications and consequences for particular people who are having this experience and figuring out how we support people who are dealing with long COVID. As you think about your work in this area, what you know in this area, the studies that have been published and those that you know are in the works, what would you say to listeners is an area or an aspect of this that we really need to pay attention to as we move forward? Several things are, are really important in terms of what we need to find out. Scientists need to learn a lot more about what causes long COVID. There are some theories, and it may end up being, and I actually think it will end up being, that there are different causes for different types of symptoms. And I think we're going to see a sort of splintering of this major general diagnosis of long COVID, and there will be different you know, kind of flavors of it as people learn more. So there's a lot of work being done to try to understand the causes. It's very important to, to try to understand a question you asked earlier, which is who is most at risk? And is there anything that we can do to prevent people from developing this or at least from developing it so severely? Um, For example, there's some indication now from a bunch of studies that being vaccinated does help. It's not clear exactly how much, but it does seem like if you're vaccinated and you get infected, you're going to have a milder time, both with your initial infection and you're also less likely to develop long COVID or less likely to have it last as long. Um, so that's you know a signal that that's important. And and there are a whole bunch of people looking at different kinds of treatments. That's obviously also very very important. So far, 
I would say, unfortunately, there's nothing, there's no kind of like approved medication that people have clearly considered as something that helps. There are different, lots of different things that people are looking at. Uh, one approach that I wrote about, which I think does have the potential to help people, but is time consuming and takes a lot of effort. Last year, I followed a woman, young woman, you know, in her 30s, otherwise pretty healthy, very active, mild infection, got long COVID and was just debilitated. Everything from brain fog to, you know, all sorts of stuff, fatigue. And she participated in a program called cognitive rehab, which is something that hospitals and clinics have been doing for years for patients who suffer from strokes or brain injury, that kind of thing. And she spent months, several times a week, going to physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech language pathologist therapy to sort of help her with her memory and her cognitive processing speed and attention. And it did help her. And she graduated from it. And she's doing much better now. But it did take a long time. And there are still kinds of strategies and things that she needs to kind of have going on in her life, like lots of lists and lots of post-its everywhere, which she sort of feels like she might have to live with forever. So that kind of thing is a measure of both how severe this condition can be. And also, yes, there are things that can make people better, but they they can be pretty, pretty time intensive. Um, I guess on a one positive note is that there is a there is evidence that many people actually do get better over time. So so some people will just improve with time. And that's that's an important thing to keep in mind. I appreciate you, Pam, for sharing that story because it also reminds us that hope is possible in this situation and it's on the horizon and why many of the studies that are happening in the medical field and the science field are so important for understanding this, but also helping us to understand what can be done. Pam Bellick is health and science writer for the New York Times, and she's a winner of the Victor Cohn Prize for Excellence in Medical Science Reporting. Pam, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm very happy to do it. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Emily Cherish, and Katie Tularski. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean, wishing you and your loved ones a very safe, joyous, and prosperous holiday season. Thanks for listening.